Hello and welcome to MySecurity TV and our Tech and Sec Weekly. My name is Chris Coverage. I'm the Executive Editor and Director with MySecurity Media. Today we've got a special guest, Hugh White, Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies, School of International Political and Strategic Studies with the Australian National University. And this is a uh, edition review, number 14, with the Australian Foreign Affairs, uh, the Taiwan Choice a showdown in Asia, and Hugh White uh, wrote the leading article in this particular edition. Hugh White, thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be with you. Uh, Hugh, have followed your work for many years, uh, and there won't be anyone in the sort of the intelligence uh, and strategic community that won't know you. Uh, and what a way to open up this particular edition of uh, this edition of Australian Foreign, uh, Foreign Affairs. Um, I just wanted to sort of set the scene for the audience. The Quad met, uh, the leaders met last night, uh, and we've since this article has been published. Uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. So the context of the article, uh, however uh, controversial it might be, uh, has certainly changed. And your opening line is, it is not inevitable that America and China will go to war over Taiwan, but the risk is real and growing. So I thought my first question would be, has that risk changed uh, given this, uh, uh, well, it's an invasion of Ukraine by Russia yeah. and uh, the meeting of the Quad and that they can't even come out and, and condemn it as a group? Yeah, look, I think it's a really good it's a really good question, and I think there are some significant indicators both ways. Uh, some ways in which you might say that the unfolding drama and tragedy uh, in Ukraine makes uh, a conflict over Taiwan more likely, in some ways, in which it makes it less likely. Let me take 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 the more optimistic side of the equation first, and look at the ways in which it might make it less likely, and that is that. Uh, the, the scale of the international response to Russia's invasion, the severity of the economic sanctions, as we can see, but also the broader you know, pushback, not universal, as you say, not all of the quarter in the tent. But, but you know, I think this, this, I, I suspect the strength of the response um, uh, has surprised Moscow, but has also, I suspect, surprised Beijing and would perhaps make it a little bit more cautious about the way in which uh, Chinese military action against Taiwan would, um, uh, would, would, would play out and, how, and, and, and what, what the response would be. So I think there is that, so to speak, bit of good news. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, there are very clear parallels between uh, the situation in Ukraine and the situation in relation to Taiwan, particularly when we dig beneath the, so to speak, specifics and look at what's fundamentally at stake. I mean, it does seem to me, been very clear, in fact, from the way Putin has spoken, that right at the heart of his objectives are to reassert uh, Russia's status as a great power and to re-win for Russia the sphere of influence that it believes it has traditionally had and, and as a great power deserves in, uh, in what the Russians call its near abroad. And I do think there are quite strong parallels with what's mm. fundamentally at stake for China in relation to Taiwan. Of course, Taiwan has a special place in China's self-perception anyway, because there is a very strong sense that in China that Taiwan is part of China. And, and that's, you know, that's a significant motive in itself. But I also think, and I think people perhaps underestimate this, China's capacity to get its way over Taiwan, it's, and, and if necessary to use force, uh, to achieve what it would call reunification with Taiwan, 
is very important to China's objective of, of establishing itself, or as they might say in Beijing, re-establishing itself as the great power in East Asia and the Western Pacific uh, with a sphere of influence of its own. And, uh, and so I think that that, that, that parallel of, of objective, fundamental objectives is significant. The other thing that's significant is that whilst, as I mentioned, uh, there's been a surprising, in some ways a surprisingly strong reaction to China's, to, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what there hasn't been is a military reaction. Yeah. And the really critical question for the guys in Beijing when they ask, will we force a resolution of Taiwan on our terms by using armed force? A really critical question is, what will America do? And I think we can just about rule out the idea that China would use armed force against Taiwan if it believes there's a significant likelihood that the United States would respond militarily, because it doesn't want a war with America. But I also think there is a significant chance that the Chinese would judge that America wouldn't use force to defend Taiwan, despite all the things that we keep on hearing out of Washington. And the basic reason for that, and it goes to the to the thrust of my essay, is that I don't I don't think America can win that war. And you know why? In the end, did did uh, did NATO not defend Ukraine because they knew they couldn't win? Yeah. Why would why might Beijing conclude? that uh, the US would not defend Taiwan because the Chinese believe that the Americans know they can't win that war. And the America and the, the, the clarity with which Biden right at the outset of the Ukraine crisis said, we're not going to fight for Ukraine. And the way in which across the board in Washington, that's been accepted. We've had nobody in Washington, you know, you can usually get someone in Washington to, to, to support just about any proposition you can imagine. But so far as I've heard, no, no significant voice in Washington has been arguing the United States should intervene militarily. That, I'm sure, must increase China's confidence that if it t takes the risk, rolls the dice on Taiwan, that the United States would not come in militarily. And that, of course, does make that more likely. And there's also, of course, the risk that the Chinese would get that wrong and the United States would come in. Well, you, you do put it nicely. Uh, that's how you finish your essay. I think you join that opening statement with the closing statement that uh, if they do roll the dice uh, and China, America doesn't fight, uh, in which case the US era in East Asia is at an end. And I think that brings us to the Thucydides trap that you've also made mention that this is maybe less about Taiwan than it is about regional power and, uh, and dominance, and the two do relate, even though there is a direct uh, link there to Taiwan, um, you know, the, the stakes are much, much higher than that, which, again, makes this a dangerous situation. Yeah, look, that's right. I mean, I think, of course, again, to draw the analogy with, uh, with the Ukraine, we can see what a huge gamble this has been for, Biden, for, 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 for Putin. Putin. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, and there's a tendency to think that uh, Xi Jinping is a pretty sensible fella. Uh, the Chinese system is anything but reckless. Um, they look, they appear to be very orderly and and sort of considered decision makers. And there's a tendency to think that they simply wouldn't take the risk. But I think what we have to weigh against that is the is is the potential benefits they win, and 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 they and and he in particular, Xi in particular, yeah. because. Taiwan is, it seems to me, the key to Xi's uh, final achievement of the rejuvenation of China's status as a, as a great power, as the great East Asian power. I do think that an American failure to defend Taiwan, 
given that the United States itself has allowed Taiwan to become the test of US resolve and credibility in the Western Pacific. A US failure to defend it would, would fatally undermine uh, the credibility of US alliances elsewhere in Asia and US America's position as a great power in Asia does depend on its alliances because it's not a local power uh, itself. And therefore, I think the, the Chinese, when they look at this and when they ask themselves, is it worth taking the risk? That one of the things that will impel them towards taking that risk, and one of the things that I think makes our military crisis over Taiwan more likely than many other people do, is that I think the, not that the risks are high, but that the stakes are so high, the potential benefit is so high. And, uh, and you know, we, we, we know that the guys in Beijing are not reckless, but we also know they are risk takers. They'll take yep. a considered risk. The, the only difference I've noticed uh, looking at the first week of this crisis in Ukraine is the refugees and the movements through to Poland and the like, whereas Taiwan's an island, uh, about half the population, 25 million versus Ukraine's 40. But the, the, the population hasn't got anywhere to go. Yeah. Uh, is the only risk of a military uh, attack. Is, is that how they would be thinking too? Because that, again, the info war and the, the populist war that we're seeing around Russia and Ukraine is definitely going to play out uh, with a population of 1.4 billion. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting point, actually, how, the, how both the sort of demographic and geographical differences between the two situations would produce different outcomes. I mean, the, the, first, thing to, the first thing to say is that... Um, it does appear to me that Russia was rather ill-prepared for the operation of rather they've, they've actually launched. When people were discussing, you know, a few weeks ago, over the weeks when we saw these Russian forces building up, whether or not Putin was going to invade, I was one of those, I'll confess, who said that I thought it was pretty unlikely that he'd mount a full-scale invasion. He could easily try and sort of take the Donbass, for example, yeah. perhaps that, that stretch of... Um, of Black Sea coast uh, running down to Crimea, that all looked to me quite, quite plausible. But, but what struck me was that uh, even with 190,000 troops stashed on the border, it, it didn't look like there was enough to me to mount a full-scale invasion. It's a, country. It's, a, it's, a, it's a big country. And I mean, it's not as though we're, we're, we're without sort of hist recent historical exemplars. We've watched the poor old United States try and dominate Iraq. Yeah, well, Afghanistan too. <laughs> we know how hard it is. Now, you can say, of course, there are some disanalogies there. Russia is a local power uh, to Ukraine. Uh, there's much closer, for all the differences, and I'm not disputing them for a moment, but for all the differences, there's a much closer, so to speak, cultural and civilizational affinity between Russia and Ukraine. It, perhaps it wasn't quite the alien incursion that uh, America's attempts to transform Iraq and Afghanistan turned out to be. But even so, it looked to me, and I thought to myself, this bloke, Putin, uh, has not assembled enough forces to make that a full-scale invasion look like a credible uh, military option. Now, the other thing that struck me was that, that the deployment of his forces didn't look like they were designed for a full-scale invasion because what struck me is, and what we can still see, is that he's got his forces spread very thinly around, you know, very wide, you know, really around two-thirds of the border of, of, of Ukraine from Belarus all the way around to the Romanian border. And it struck me that if I was Putin and I wanted to, to seize Ukraine as a whole, I'd put a lot more of my forces up there in the north, directly to the north, um, uh, and, uh, and really focus as much of my effort as I could on a thrust to Kiev. Um, that would seem to be the sort of, you know, classic Napoleonic 
um, uh, you know, military strategy. And and so I think there's a there's a chance that that the Russians were actually pretty unprepared for what they've actually ended up trying to do. Now I think the Chinese will be in no doubt if they make a military operation move against Taiwan, there would be no ambiguity about what their what their military objective would be. How hard that would be to achieve militarily is one question. I personally think it would be easier than some other people do. But the, but the broader question in a way is how hard would it be to move on from military to success to strategic success via a successful transformation of the domestic politics yeah. of Taiwan. And, and there, I, I, I mean, to be honest, I just don't know. I, I, I completely understand how strong the majority, overwhelming majority of, 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 um, of opinion in Taiwan is against the idea of incorporation. But whether the Chinese could, with potentially immense effort, of course, but with immense resources available to them, a combination of, um, of uh, persuasion and compulsion uh, turn Taiwan into a functioning part of the People's Republic of China, I, I don't know, but the key point I'd make is I wouldn't bet that the guys in Zhongnanhai don't believe they can. And I think that also brings, do you think the... Uh, the relationship with Russia uh, and how strong that has been. Uh, Putin was in uh, Beijing for the for the Olympics. Yeah. We spoke to Alexei Miravir from Curtin, who uh, had a uh, quite in depth uh, yeah. view in terms of that relationship. So this does kind of change the the timeline potentially. Uh, one of the points was if this is a protract, protracted uh, war in Ukraine, it's quite a distraction for the US and it might create an opportunity for, for Beijing where they see this is a game changer for us and the timing has changed? Yeah, look, I think, I think, there's, something, I think there's something in that. Um, uh, even if um, Russia succeeds in achieving its strategic objectives in Ukraine and the war is sort of over in its sort of active sense re relatively quickly, and I don't at all presume for a moment that's gonna happen, but even if it does, it is absolutely crystal clear that uh, the that NATO's posture along its eastern border with Russia and the Russian sphere of influence is going to need to be immensely reinforced. And uh, I think it's very likely that a very significant portion of that will be undertaken by the Europeans themselves. I think what we've seen coming out of Germany um, in the last few days is immensely significant there. But I, but I also think that if America is going to sustain a significant strategic role in Europe, uh, then it's going to have to play a very big part in that. And so on the grounds of what you might call sheer resources, whatever happens, a, a much bigger proportion of America's total strategic effort is now going to be absorbed in Europe than a month ago, let alone a year ago, most US strategists would have, would have expected. Now, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't also step up in in Asia, but it but they can't do that without very substantial increases in in effort and expenditure. And it's worth remembering that you know U.S. defense spending is actually pretty low, very low by historic standards. Now, down right. at whatever at three point seven percent of GDP, something like that. Um, that's that's very low for the U.S. Probably a record low in post World War Two terms. Uh, it would take a substantial increase for the United States to be able to deploy enough forces into Europe to stabilise that situation and also to make what seemed to me necessarily much bigger military investments in Asia to rebuild its capacity credibly to defend uh, Taiwan. 
And so that's if that can be done at all. And there are some questions I have there about whether that's even a possibility for them. So I think uh, it is def it's, it's definitely the case that it's a distraction. And what that means is that in that sense, in particular, what Putin has done in, in Europe has benefited China in its objectives in Asia. Um, and I also think you can make that point, not just in the terms I've just sketched in terms of what you might call the physical military balance, but also, so to speak, in the in the judgments of resolve, that, um, that the fact that Biden, as I mentioned earlier, was so quick to rule out military intervention in, um, in uh, Ukraine, I, th I think must increase the likelihood that China's leadership will conclude that he wouldn't intervene in, 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 in Asia. Brings me straight back to how I want to kind of finish the second half of this session is, um, to quote you all, this suggests that America's deterrence of China is weak. Uh, and again, with the Quad meeting last night uh, and a SNAP meeting at that is uh, a little, I was surprised to wake up to that this morning to to realise that they've, they've met. And I think India put that message out first that they were meeting, mm. which again, there's a special relationship there. Uh, and they're somewhat conflicted uh, with Russia with and the Quad at the moment, given China's relationship with them. Um, and the the prospects here for Australia in terms of a direct attack, let's say we end up in a conflict with China or the US uh, ends up in a conflict with China, uh, and you mentioned that that's going to escalate very, very quickly, and we obviously have American assets on Australian soil. So if it escalates very, very quickly, we then become on the front line. Um, I just want to get your view on the quad, and you mentioned that that actually signals that America is weak and is un, is less less so because of the quad. Mm. Uh, just your, your general observations, yeah. the potential meaning of the quad leaders meeting last night as well in mm. in the current environment. Yes, look, I've I've always been a bit of a skeptic of the quad uh, uh, as an effective instrument for containment uh, of China's ambitions in in East Asia. And there's, and I, and I, and I think, uh, and I say that for for two, for two reasons. The first is that right at the heart of the quad is the idea that India is because in, India is the most important, the most important bit of the quad yeah. is India because you know the idea that Japan and Australia were East Asian allies of the United States and would support the United States in whatever it was doing in East Asia. We, we all knew that that dates back to 1951. Um, what was new about the Quad was that the United States had bought, or Japan, I'd say, had bought India into that equation. And it was really based on the idea that India would be willing to lend its strategic weight to contain China's challenge to the US-led order in East Asia. Now, that always seemed to me to be highly, a highly optimistic proposition. I can easily buy the argument that, that India will lend its strategic weight to constraining China's ambitions in, in South Asia and the Indian Ocean. And of course, to resisting China's pressure on India on the, on the, on the China-India border. Um, but, but, uh, the, the, but the idea that India would lend its weight north and east of the Straits of Malacca always seemed to me to be very questionable. And so whilst you could say India's resistance to China's ambitions uh, gave us high level of reinsurance that India, that China wouldn't end up dominating the whole of Asia, the whole of the Indo-Pacific region. Yeah. It always seemed to me to, to, to give me very little reassurance that India was willing 
to, uh, to, 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 make, to do anything to prevent China ending up as a dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. And indeed, for a long time now, I've conjured a pessimistic, but I think realistic view of Asia's strategic future in which China does end up as the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. And India ends up as a dominant power in South Asia and the Indian Ocean. And then there's a dividing line between those two spheres of influence, uh, which runs from, you know, roughly speaking, you know, Myanmar down through, um, you know, Thailand and Malaysia and Indonesia and uh, into the Southwest Pacific and down to Australia and New Zealand. Now, that's actually good news for us because it means instead of living squarely in China's sphere of influence, we live on the boundary between yep. two great powers for of influence. And you can, you know, if you play your cards right, you can you can exploit that to your advantage. Um, but but it, it leaves the primary challenge to the US in East Asia and the Western Pacific, where the really important challenge is taking place, um, pretty much unchanged. The second reason I've always been skeptical about the Quad is that not even Japan and Australia and the United States, even leaving aside the point about India, uh, have been have really been willing to, to 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 drive the quad in the direction it needs to go if it's going to effectively strengthen deterrence against China. Uh, if you look at what the quad's focused on doing, you know, in its successive meetings last year, for example, there's a there's a you know a hat full of of, of initiatives on you know. Um, uh, supply chain resilience, vaccines, cyber, global warming. I mean, these are all good things. I don't, de yeah. don't deny them. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't see the contest with China as profoundly strategic and that the, and what's really required in order, to, in order to contain the Chinese challenge to US leadership in East Asia is military deterrence. And so to the extent that, that the Quad uh, or even just the, the three, Australia, Indonesia, Australia, US and, and um, Japan, uh, are, are not able to articulate clear shared military resolve the way NATO does, for example, then I don't think it's going to significantly enhance uh, the Quad's uh, effectiveness or America's effectiveness in pushing back against China. And you can distill that into a very simple proposition. And, unless and until Australia and, and Japan are willing to really commit themselves to support the United States in a war with China over Taiwan, for example, the way NATO members are committed under yep. Article 5, then I think it's going to be, it's not going to make much difference to the calculus of the guys in Beijing, and they're the people who matter, uh, whether or not to take a risk of, of attacking uh, Taiwan. And, and a NATO-type organisation in Asia is just not going to happen. I, I think I think it's not going to happen, and that's one of the reasons why I'm pessimistic about the. Or it actually creates, or it creates conflict. It, that it, it, exactly. I mean, there's a there's a couple of problems there, and uh, one is that uh, uh, that you know, Asia the, Asia has no successful tradition of multilateral um, uh, security structures, and for a very good reason, and that is that Asia is very spread out and very mm -hmm. maritime. And so, whereas in Europe, you could build NATO during the Cold War because it was very obvious to everyone on our side of the Iron Curtain that everyone's security depended on everyone else. You didn't have to be a strategic genius in Europe yeah. in 1955 to calculate 
that the defence of West Germany was vital to the defence of, of France, which was vital to the defence of Britain, which was vital to the defence of Italy, and so on. That, they were all in that together, because every time I look at the map of Europe, I'm, I'm struck, as, we, as I am again now, looking at what's happening today, how, how much power and population and how much politics is compacted in that little peninsula of, of, of the western end of Eurasia. Whereas in Europe, in, in Asia rather, it's all spread out. You know, in theory, we can have a conversation about whether the security of Japan from China is important to Australia's security. But I'll tell you, it's nothing like as immediate as yeah. the proposition that France's security from Russia depends on Germany's security from Russia. And Germany's security from Russia depends on Poland's security. It's very strict, very direct and mechanical because it's continental. And and so, you know, I think there's a reason why we, we, we haven't had this kind of multilateral structure. The other problem there is that when you put all the countries of NATO to, to today together in one, you know, in one chunk, they amount, they amount to a really massive strategic counterweight to Russia. I mean, they way, they way outweigh Russia. Russia will never become the dominant power in Europe anymore. It might have at the end of the Second World War when the rest of Europe was flat on its back. But today, the, the, the power, the, the, the population, the technology and the potential, the military potential, if not the actual power, of, of what you might call the United Europe of today, way outweighs Russia. And so NATO is, a, is you know, is, is a very effective counterbalance, even without the United States. Whereas in East Asia, with the United States, you know, with, with Japan and Australia, probably not South Korea, none of the ASEANs. Yep. And, but even, and even on the population, right, I always do shake my head of we're 25 million people. Yeah. Uh, in the southern part of Asia that, uh, yeah. and we, we still call ourselves, in terms of AUKUS, you know, we still look back to colonial yeah. links uh, exactly. to, to the US and the UK. That's exactly and, right. And I bring that straight back to the, your final point uh, because I wrote in my notes, I had notes all through your article, is it's not happening. Uh, you yeah. said Taiwan has to work out its future relationship with Beijing as best it can and so must Australia, uh, and that is our destiny in the Asia century. Um, but we're not doing that. We're not even trying. No, no, so no. are we yeah. not? And in fact, we're pushing back uh, with the likes of AUKUS, which, yeah. uh, and I've interviewed a number of, uh, of scholars recently on AUKUS, and AUKUS is just a, an acronym at the moment. It's not a strategy. It's not a policy. There's nothing. It's not, it's not even in the immediate term. Yeah. It's just words to push back yeah. and uh, it goes against your closing statement. And so, and you mentioned you're a pessimist, a realistic pessimist. I'm an optimistic pessimist. I, I, <laughs> I, um, how, how do you feel making that final closing statement yeah. and yeah. then seeing what uh, national security statements are being made? Yeah, look, really important question. I mean, you know, I, I do think we have to push back against China. I'm not one of those who thinks that, you know, China is inherently benign. It, it does seek to displace the US power uh, and, and take America's place as the primary power in the Western Pacific and East Asia. And I think that's very serious for Australia because, you know, ever since 1788, we've defined our security in this part of the world in this strange predicament that we have ended up in down here uh, as depending on the domination of the Western Pacific by either the United Kingdom in the old days or the United States since roughly the fall of Singapore. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's a problem for us and I think there's a lot of things to worry about, about China's rise. On the other hand, I do think we have to be very realistic about what's going to happen. And, and it, it does seem to me that at the moment, 
we are just hoping against hope that, that America can somehow push back against China effectively and preserve its leadership as it used to be in the old days. And I think that's very unlikely because China ceases to accept America's position in Asia and China is now so strong that with all the asymmetrical advantages it has from being the local power, I don't see how the United States can sustain its leadership in Asia, contain China's challenge at a price that it's willing to pay. And I therefore think Australia has to start getting much more real about the likelihood that we're going to end up living in that Asia I sketched before, China dominating on one side, India dominating on the other. And, and, I, and, and things like AUKUS, you know, exactly as you say, don't seem to me to provide any kind of way out of that. It's, it, it's a, diplomatically, strategically, it's a declaration of our total alignment with the United States at a time when I think the United States policy is very uncertain. And, and operationally, in terms of our actual capabilities, it defers the achievement of a, of a viable longer term submarine capability so far into the future that it yeah. hardly matters. I mean, the idea that AUKUS contributes to, which is what the government said, that AUKUS contributes to the deterrence of China, when we won't have one nuclear boat in the water within, within 25 years, and we won't have a viable capability, which is a minimum of six, and until well into the 50s, the 2050s. Well, I'll tell you, the strategic contest in Asia between America and China will have been resolved long before the first uh, Australian nuclear submarine is in the water, and I suspect before the first steel is cut on the first Australian nuclear submarine. Given that there's a whole new design to be developed, I don't think anyone's going to build another another copy of the of either the Astutes or the or the Virginia class. So I I I think we, we at the moment are kidding ourselves as a country um, about how we're managing this extraordinarily important thing, and, and what we have to wake up to is the fact that we have to learn to live with a powerful China. We have to wake up to the fact that that doesn't mean we surrender to China and do whatever it wants, but it does mean that we have to start thinking really seriously about how we protect ourselves in an Asia in which the United States is no longer the dominant power. And that includes, I, I, I think, and I've, I've argued at, at length in stuff I've published, that that includes a very massive rethink of our defence posture and, and, and a lot more money spent on defence, but that's to maximise our independent capacity in the decades ahead. Well, maybe to close off on that, because you wrote the 2000 Defence White Paper as well, how how different do you see that twenty years now oh, compared to something <laughs> like that? And you know, we talk about AUKUS, which is another sort of twenty years yes. from now. Would good, you good, have made any any changes way. to close off? Good, good, good way to think about it. Look, um, the, the thing about the two thousand defence white paper was that it was written before the two thousand and one, the dramas of two thousand and one, and its primary and the focus. World changes. This is going to this is going to seem a little self serving. But it's the primary focus of the 2000 white paper was, in fact, on how does Australia start to prepare itself for a much more strategically contested Asia as China's power grows. Now, we weren't quite as impolite to say it as bluntly as that in, the, in a white paper government document. But, you, but I'll, I've gone back and reread it a, a couple of months ago, and I was a bit surprised how frank we actually were, how, how we set, set that out. And to, in fairness, the, the, the next white paper, the 2009 white paper, the one Kevin Rudd did, was even blunter about that. And some of the things we did uh, in the 2000 white paper, but in particular, and underlying that, the commitment the Howard government made in that white paper 
the 2% per annum real growth over 10 years, which at the time was a very revolutionary thing to do, was, I think, the right thing to do. It, it, it constituted sort of a change of gear in the way in which we thought about our defence. Um, but the fact that it was focused primarily on Asia and the Pacific and on the challenges of a more contested Asia as China's power grew and America's power was challenged, that got washed away on the 11th September uh, 2001. And it took about another eight years until 2009 until that came back into focus. So that's a long way of saying I actually do feel that the 2000 white paper is in pretty good shape looking back over the to, over, over the intervening years, but I, but I also think that, I mean, if I, if, if I had my time over again, of course, I'd have done, I'd have pushed for us to do more because in the end, China's power has risen and its ambition has risen faster than I expected. America's power has declined faster than I expected, um, partly because of, uh, of, uh, of 9-11 and the distraction of the war on terror, partly because of developments within the United States itself. And partly just because China's got done better than any of us expected. I mean, you know, it was back in 2000, it was a pretty contentious thing to say that China would, would overtake the United States economically. And no one believed, at least no one I spoke to, believed it was going to happen until the middle of the century sort of thing. The fact that China would overtake the United States in PPP terms as early as 2015 or 2016, which is what ended up happening, people just, no, that was just regarded yeah. as, you know, not, not going to happen. Well, well, it did. And, so and I think done more the, in 2000. The technology journey has also been very yeah. different over the last 20 years, that's, that's uh, which right. has also changed. And I think that's, again, why uh, it's worth maintaining a sort of a watchful, watching brief on this as we do, uh, a sort of a catalyst like uh, a major invasion and another war in Europe uh, is a game changer for everybody. And we don't yet understand uh, those changes that are coming through. So, Hugh White, I could spend another few hours with you, part, part, uh, bit by bit, but Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies, School of International Political and Strategic Studies with ANU. An absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Good on you, Hugh. Thank you.